Thank you, Dan. All right, well, we believe that the Bible is God's inspired word, and that it is not only true and trustworthy, but also powerful and effective. And so we spend our time in preaching and teaching, first looking into God's word, seeking to understand what he has told us, um, rather than Rather than starting with God, here are my problems, how can you fix them? We want to come to God and hear his assessment of our lives. Hear his meaning for, for our life, what we are doing, and then allow him to speak to us and allow him to address and meet our needs. So we are currently going through the book of Hebrews. In the New Testament, we're going to finish up chapter 9 today. Um, earlier in the New Testament... In the book of Romans, the author Paul explains how God's salvation works. And he says this, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then he says this, Then what becomes of boasting? If this is how God saves us, then what becomes of boasting? And Paul answers his own question. He says, It is excluded. So what he's saying is that the particular way that God saves people is intentionally designed to remove any and all boasting. God saves us in a way that removes every motivation and reason and justification for making much of ourselves, putting our hope and confidence and trust in ourselves. If you understand the gospel, understand how God saves you, you have no reason to brag or boast or point to yourself. As Paul says in another letter in 1 Corinthians, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That is the purpose of God's salvation. That all who come to Jesus for life and salvation might behold his grandness and his goodness and his greatness and glory and might boast in him, make much of him, love him, trust him. And so today, we're going to talk about how God saves us. We're going to talk about the sacrificial death of Jesus and what it accomplished. The theological term for this is the atonement. But the thing to keep in mind is the grand purpose of it all. Not just how it works, but why God does this. Why God saves us in this way. And that is, again, to eliminate all human boasting and boasting and glorying and delighting and rejoicing and hoping in self and direct our hearts and our minds to Christ. That we might rejoice in him, make much of him, love him, delight in him, trust in him, and seek him. That is God's will for you. That is the purpose of God's salvation in you. It's not just to save you. It's not just to make you his, but it's to direct your hearts and minds and your whole lives to live for him, to boast in him. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Okay? So we're in chapter 9 of the book of Hebrews. I said last week that this section from chapters 8 through chapters 10 compares and contrasts Jesus and his death to the Old Testament sacrificial system of the temple and the priests and the sacrifices. This, this, this section in Hebrews is showing how that Old Testament system was a 
shadow and a copy, words that Hebrews uses, that pointed forward to the thing that was, to the real thing. To the thing that that was a shadow of, to the thing that that was a copy of. It points forward to the, something that is more real, more significant, more lasting, and that is Jesus. And what his death accomplished. So we ended with verse 15 last week. We're going to start by reading that verse again. Hebrews 9.15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgression, transgressions committed under the first covenant. So the first covenant was the relational agreement that God had entered into with, with ancient Israel that we read about in the beginning of the Old Testament. God commits himself to humanity through covenants. God intentionally binds himself to humanity and to certain courses of action by making promises and covenants. Uh, we, we don't have to wonder how God is going to act. He's not just willy-nilly, random, oh, I wonder who God's going to be. No, God makes promises and covenants. And so he makes a covenant with Israel. He said, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. He rescues them miraculously out of Egypt, showing them his power and his protection and his love for them. He gives them laws and commands that they might know both who he is and how they can live as his people in ways that glorify him and that they're good. And then he gives them the sacrificial system that teaches them that sin leads to death, but that God is going to do something about it. God is going to provide a way for sinful humanity to be reconciled to him. In all of this, God is teaching them who he was. As he proclaimed to Moses in Exodus 34, he said, I am a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And so all of this all of these aspects of the first covenant, the laws and the obedience that they called for, the temple with its system of priests and sacrifices and cleansing rituals, the hope of peace with God and God dwelling among us, all of this was a shadow pointing forward to a better covenant, the real thing. God's plan all along was Jesus, to reveal himself to Je through Jesus to atone for sin through Jesus, to create a people for himself through Jesus, and to judge the world through Jesus. That was plan A all from the beginning. And Jesus is, as it says here, the mediator of a new covenant. Not because the old covenant failed in its purpose, but because it was always meant to be temporary. A shadow, a copy, or a, a, yeah, shadow or copy of the real thing to come. And so when it says there in verse 15, a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, this is saying that even those who lived under the first covenant are saved and redeemed and given life eternally through the death of Jesus. Jesus' death works retroactively. As those under the old covenant trusted in the God of that covenant, 
trusted in the God who was gracious and provided a way for sins to be atoned for. They were trusting in a shadow, a, a foreshadow, a copy of the Christ who was, would, would come. They were trusting in the promises of God. Now, the word death shows up here, and forewarning, there's going to be a lot of death and blood in this section today. Uh, these terms will appear 10 times in the 14 verses. And the big idea is that God put this new covenant into place, enacted it, initiated it, ratified it through the death of Jesus. The new covenant is brought into place and made what it is through the death of Jesus. The death of Jesus really accomplished something. It was not merely a great example of love and humility, although it was that, but more than that, it was an effective deed with massive implications for every human being. The death of Jesus is the basis for the relationship that God calls us into, that God wants to have with us. And this section fleshes that out. How does that work? Why is that so? And so continuing on in verse 16, remember that this is a comparison and contrast section, and so the author is first going to remind us of some of the aspects of the first covenant. Verse 16, for where a will is involved, now, quick, quick note here, the word will, um, or it might be translated something else in your Bibles, but the word that's translated will here in this version is the same Greek word translated covenant in the earlier on, in the previous verse. The Greek word can mean either covenant, this relational agreement like we're talking about here, or it can mean will, like a last will and testament, um, which describes someone's wishes for their possessions and wealth after they die. But it doesn't much matter which meaning we take. Uh, the point is that both are initiated, ratified, brought into existence through death. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. And now he's going to refer to some uh, events in Exodus 34, verse 19. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded you. And now he's going to jump forward a little bit and refer to some events in Exodus 29. Verse 21, And in the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, that is the law of the old covenant, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. A lot of talk about blood. Why? Well, I said last week that this, this, this kind of system of sacrifices and priests and a temple and cleansing rituals would not have been strange for the ancient Israelites. This was common uh, among the people groups of that time. But God is using something that was specific to that time and culture and people to teach both them and us about something that is true and transcendent and ultimate for all people in all times. 
We are not simply talking about blood here. Blood represents life. And the shedding of blood represents death. Blood represents life, and the shedding of blood represents death. And more specifically, the shedding of blood in the, in the context of a temple represents sacrificial death. Death that occurs as a sacrifice for someone else. Someone should have died, and yet this animal is being offered or sacrificed in the place of that someone. And so the truth that is proclaimed throughout all of this and all throughout the Bible is that human sin leads to death. These sacrifices that God instituted in the Old Testament, in this old system, weren't really cleansing of them of their sin and guilt, as Hebrews will go on to clearly say, but rather they were proclaiming that sin against God leads to death. They were proclaiming a verdict for sin. They were putting a price and value on sin, death. As the animals were sacrificed in the temple, as people came and, and brought their animals, this was reminding them in an incredibly tangible and bloody way that sin leads to death. But this also put a price and value on life and the purpose of life and the meaning of life, that it's much more significant than we realize. Sin is rebellion against our Creator, God, and His good world. And it leads to all of the chaos and destruction and misery and pain and tears and, and then ultimately death that we experience in this life and then judgment, God's judgment in the next. Because life is that valuable. And because God is that valuable. But that's not all the sacrifices proclaimed. It wasn't only bad news. As God set up this system among the Israelites, among the ancient Israelites, God was also proclaiming that he was a merciful and compassionate, slow to anger, forgiving God. And that he would provide a way himself. He himself would provide a way for sinful humanity to approach him, for sin and guilt to be atoned for and covered up and forgiven a way that didn't require human death. And so the blood of, of animals was a substitute sacrifice. The animal was dying in the place of humans. God wasn't just going to let humanity try to figure this out on their own. He was going to provide a way. And so to be clear, as we read about blood here and throughout Scripture, as we sing about blood, as we already have this morning, we're not merely talking about blood. We're not merely talking about the substance that is blood. We are talking about a life sacrificed for the sake of another, in the place of another, for the sins of another. That's what these sacrifices proclaimed and made clear. Sin leads to death, but God will provide a way. Sin leads to death, but God will provide a way for sinners to live now and into eternity with him. So we have this principle there, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now you might be asking, and many people do ask, why can't God just forgive sins? Why all this blood and death? Why doesn't God just forgive sin? 
Well, part of the answer, again, is that the judgment, the judgment of death, proclaims something. It proclaims something about God, that he is perfect and righteous and just with no trace of evil, and he is committed to all that is perfect and right and just and good and true. To just forgive sin without any verdict given is to excuse sin, which would lessen his goodness. And the judgment of death also proclaims something about sin, that it's a big deal, that it's not to be taken lightly, that it cannot be just swept under the rug. Just like in a courtroom, a judge's sentence proclaim something about the seriousness of a sin, that murder or theft or deception are really evil and not to be taken lightly. But the problem isn't really that we don't think evil requires a just verdict and punishment. The problem tends to be that we don't think we're really that bad, that we don't think sin ought to lead to death. But until we accept that death is, in fact, the right and just verdict for sin, that it actually properly values both God and life and sin, that God is righteous in this judgment. Until we accept that, the heart of the Bible, the heart of the gospel, will not make much sense to us. Because it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The gospel necessarily humbles us before God. Whoa, that's, that's the price of my sin? That's, that's what sin leads to? That should humble us. And yet at the same time, until we accept that death is a just and right ju- verdict for sin, we will fail to see the glory of God in himself Shedding, the blood for our, shedding blood for our sins in the person of Jesus. We will fail to come to boast in Christ alone. At the same time that the gospel necessarily humbles us, it also fills us with great hope and comfort and joy and peace because God himself does everything we need. We are going to sing later the, the song, I Glory in the Cross, Um, I glory in the cross, in Christ its conqueror. Let everything in me make much of who he is, who you are. I glory in the cross for nothing else compares. No status, wisdom, wealth match the glory of the cross. This leads us to the next section, verse 23, as we move from the description of the Old Testament system, it was a shadow and copy to Jesus. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things, this Old Testament system, to be purified with these rites, that is, the blood of animals, various washing sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, which is not saying that there is an actual physical temple in, in heaven that needs Jesus' physical blood. Remember, the blood is representative of a sacrifice. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. 
So just as an Old Testament priest would come before the Lord's presence in the temple, so Jesus, after rising, after dying and then rising from the dead, ascends to heaven. And this is actually the only place in Hebrews that you have a singular heaven, not heavens, but heaven, which refers to the very presence of God. We're not just just talking about up there, the heavens. We're talking about the presence of God in heaven where Jesus goes on our behalf. Verse 25, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world, which is, of course, absurd. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, and this is actually a quote reference to Isaiah 53, 12, prophesied 800 years before, bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. What we see here, and I mentioned this last week, is that Christ's death and his subsequent resurrection really accomplishes something. Really accomplished something. This historical event in time and place when the man, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, was killed on a cross, accomplished something for all who would believe in him. Accomplished something in the heavenly, spiritual, eternal realm. Now, the question is, what? What did it accomplish? And Scripture tells us various things, that Christ's death accomplished a lot. But at the center of all that was accomplished, all that happened, all that God did on the cross, is stated here very clearly, Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. In Scripture, to bear sins means to bear the punishment that sins deserves which is God's judgment in wrath and death. We see the same thing in various other passages. 1 Peter 2, 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. By his wounds you have been healed. Revelation 5, 9, They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And perhaps the most astonishing verse in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he, that is God the Father, made him, God the Son, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin. Made him to be sin. Now that, that, that takes it even a step further than just bearing our sin. Made him to be sin who knew no sin, he didn't deserve to die. He had no sin in him. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The the theological term for what we are talking about here is penal substitutionary atonement. Penal substitutionary atonement. Penal has to do with penalty, penal system. He bore the penalty, the punishment for sin, Sin leads to death. Christ 
bore that penalty, not, and not just death, but God's judgment in death on him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what Jesus cried from the cross. Substitutionary. This has to do with what he did as a substitute, like the, the animals in the Old Testament system. He bore the punishment for sin in our place as a substitute. And then atonement has to do with covering. God provides a covering for our sin and guilt and will not hold us against them. And the effect of atonement is what you see in that word, atonement, at one, at one mint, that God makes us at one with him. That's what atonement does. John Stott, in his uh, wonderful, very in-depth uh, treatment of the atonement, in, in his book called The Cross of Christ, um, highly recommend it's not a short book, but highly recommend it. it. says, It is the judge himself who is who in holy love assumed the role of the innocent victim. For in and through the person of his son, he himself bore the penalty that he himself inflicted. For in order to save us in such a way as to satisfy himself, God through Christ substituted himself for us. Divine love triumphed over divine wrath by divine self-sacrifice. The cross was an act simultaneously of punishment and amnesty, severity and grace, justice and mercy. And it's not enough to only see one of these sides. We, we have to see simultaneously. Um, it's not just judgment and justice, and it's not just love and mercy. It's both. And again, when we see that, we are both humbled, like that's the price of my sin. And we are given great confidence. Look how much, look how far God was willing to go to make us his. Now, the cross is a stumbling block to many. And perhaps you struggle with, with some of this that we're talking about. And specifically this suggestion that on the cross, Jesus bore God's wrath. That Jesus became sin. This suggestion is, is a stumbling block to many and is rejected by many today. And perhaps you struggle with it. But I would have you consider what the Bible, what the Bible proclaims, that in this event, God is displaying to us the very depths of his wisdom and his power, and his love, and his goodness. We are meant to marvel at God in the cross, through the cross. We are meant to marvel that God would humble himself like this, bearing shame and ridicule and pain, but even more than that, that Jesus the Son would be forsaken and bear the, God, the brunt of God's righteous wrath on our sin. We are meant to marvel at that. We are meant to marvel at God that he would devise this plan. This isn't just what happened. This is what God planned from before time began to accomplish our salvation in this way. We are meant to marvel at God that he would love us to such an extent. To become human, to suffer and die, to be rejected by the people that he created in this way. 
And we are meant to marvel at God in the cross that he would remove all ability from humans to save themselves so as to cast themselves singularly on him. It is true, and Paul says it in 1 Corinthians very clearly, the message of Christ crucified is a stumbling block to many. But to those who are called, to those who have eyes to see, to those who are willing to behold, Paul says Christ is the very power of God and the wisdom of God. The cross of Christ, Christ crucified, is the very power of God and the wisdom of God. And so as I said in the beginning, the grand point of all of this isn't that you understand all of the complexities of the Old Testament sacrificial system. It's not about simply understanding sacrifices in the ancient Near East and how they worked. The grand point in all of this, and why Hebrews is telling us all of this, is to see that God accomplishes our salvation himself. God doesn't just tell us what to do. He doesn't just say, go in that direction, do, the, do these things, and he doesn't just affirm that, well, you're, you're fine just as you are. Don't worry about it. No, he goes before us, and he does everything that is necessary to cleanse us and to forgive us, to reconcile us with him, to make us at one with him, and to make us his forever. Salvation is of the Lord. He does it. And he gets all the glory. We can credit nothing to ourselves. And so again, salvation, the, the, the message of the gospel, not only saves us, but it glorifies him. And it makes us people who live to glorify him. Now and all into eternity. That is what penal substitutionary atonement is all about. That is what the cross is all about. That is what God is all about. Now, there are a variety of ways, a variety of temptations for us to lessen the prominence of the cross, to make this less the center of what God is doing. And we see these in our world, and we see these in our hearts. So, for example, there's the temptation to make Christianity to make what God is up to exclusively about how we live. As long as we're moral, ethical, just in our living, as long as we care for others, treat others as they would want to be treated, that's all that really matters. And you can do this in both conservative and progressive ways. You just change what the morality and ethics are. But this is an absolute offense to the cross because it is a form of self-salvation. Self and in the end, you don't really need God. And you certainly don't boast in God. There is also a temptation to make Christianity exclusively about religious and spiritual practices and experiences. Do these things and God will be pleased with you. Or do these things and you'll find inner peace. Again, this is an offense to the cross. It is a kind of self-salvation and it doesn't lead you to boast in Christ. There's also the temptation to make Christianity about getting what you want out of life, and God can help you. A kind of, Jesus is a kind of cosmic genie whom you can do a little dance or whatever, 
and get him to give you the things you want, health and happiness, get him to protect you from harm and pain. Ultimately, it's all about you. And finally, there is a temptation to make Christianity about winning some battle, winning the culture war, winning the political war, whatever war you want to fight. It's all about power and victory and glory here and now. And this, too, is an offense to the cross. Because in a worldly pursuit of power and glory, a God who suffers willingly on the cross and calls you to pick up your cross and follow him doesn't make much sense. There are ways to fight the battles and wars in our life and in our world, but we must not put our hope or identity in winning or gaining power in those ways. You know your heart. You know the specific ways that you feel the pull of probably one of these temptations. And you feel the temptation to push the cross a little bit out from center to remove the centrality of the message of Christ and him crucified and replace it with something else. Resist that temptation. However attractive those other options are, however more immediate the promises seem to be, whatever pleasures and powers they offer you, don't give in. Your hope and your worth and your joy and your peace are in God who came in the person of Jesus to bear the sins of many. It is finished. He's done it. And he, as we are told here in verse 28, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Is that you? Has your sin been dealt with in Christ's first coming at the cross through faith in Jesus? Have you been not only saved, but changed by God to live your life boasting in Christ? And are you eagerly waiting for his return? Are you eagerly waiting for him to come and welcome you into a forever world full of the goodness and the beauty and the perfections and the love and wisdom of God in a world where he is forever enjoyed and glorified by his people? Let's pray.